1: Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. On Formative, middle school kids from New
0: York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Check out my new show. Nicola Talent presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you. By MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie.
0: You're not dealing with the type of human being you're used to dealing with. And I think once you understand that, all bets are off. And this person will drive straight through you and he won't look back. That's not because he's cocky or confident in the way we ordinarily understand
1: it, it's because he's disordered. That's why he'll do it. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld, in Ireland and across the globe. What is it that fascinates us about murder? And that makes us want to know how the minds of killers work? Are we trying to protect ourselves in a seemingly dark and dangerous world, Or do we just have a morbid fascination with death? Today, I'm talking to criminologist John Dean O'Keefe about the psychopaths amongst us and about whether nature or nurture forms the primal instincts to kill. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. What sort of a character is Graeme Dwyer when he's living as the architect? We kind of all know a little bit about him now, but when he's living as that architect in the four-bed semi-D in Fox Rock with the wife, the children, the good job, you know, what sort of a person is he that he has this double life?
0: Well, you know, uh, when we talk about characters like Graeme Dwyer, um, there's a kind of a a rush towards uh, delineating their lives In other words, that one part of their lives is entirely different to the other part. And in one sense, clearly it is. I mean, he is or was carrying on with a semblance of a family life, going to work, coming home, uh, paying occasional attention to his children and his wife. And his other life was very different, uh, as we know. But ultimately, the personality, and in his case, the personality disorder of the offender, such as Graeme Dwyer, remains the same. It just operates in different ways. So when he's outside, the psychopathic uh, personality type, uh, at least antisocial personality disorder, as it might be more clinically called, is fairly evident in his lack of remorse, his lack of guilt uh, and committing heinous acts, uh, sadistic and heinous acts. But if you like that, that will also almost certainly have been manifest light when he was at home. So that kind of coldness, lack of remorse, and complete indifference to other human beings will have evidenced itself within the house. So there will have been lack of interest uh, in, in his children, lack of interest in his wife, but of course this will all be covered up in the usual shallow emotions. In other words, it will Be made to look occasionally as if he cares, because that allows the whole picture to be complete and it allows the journey of the psychopath to continue. Uh, Psychopathy, remember, is a spectrum. It's going across a whole range of issues, of which Graham Dwyer certainly appears to have ticked every box, if not another one. So sometimes Graham Dwyer will have been able to maybe be a bit lower on the register of violence and a bit higher on the register of lack of remorse and so on. And it can vary over time. So I just think we need to be careful when we say, you know, the, the I mean, it's, it's, it's an appealing idea in a criminogenic way, this idea of the Jekyll and Hyde character, but in many ways, he's no different at home to the man who is outside.
1: So he's a psychopath,
0: well, you, again, you have to be very careful of making these diagnoses from afar. Um, clinicians wouldn't do it, let, let alone an academic such as myself. Having said all of that, having been at the trial and have uh, you know examined him in some detail, I suppose, over the years, I think it would be highly unlikely that he does not fulfill the criteria for her psychopathy. So all the buttons that we've all heard about, grandiose sense of self-worth, uh, uh, catastrophic and inflated ego based on absolutely nothing, lack of remorse, lack of guilt, and so on and so forth. I think it would be very, very unlikely. Um, And certainly his conversations, both written and and verbally, and indeed his actions would all indicate uh, psychopathy. So in the round, I think it's a diagnosis we can be pretty comfortable with from afar. So what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Well, there's actually none. I mean, people like to make this distinction between psychopath and sociopath, but when you get into the murky worlds of academia, uh, we tend not to do that. Okay, let me put it this way. Um, If you were to go into the psychology department of, for example, Trinity College Dublin, and they were talking about personality issues, they might use the word psychopathy more readily than perhaps the long-haired social scientist who's teaching in UCD, who genuinely believes it's sociopathy. In other words, everything comes from social, environmental and family factors.
1: So you're both... Born with it, or you learn it. Yeah,
0: and of course, some people, maybe the general public, tend to see those distinctions in terms of violence. You know that the sociopath is perhaps more middle class, has a more of a handle on his violence, whereas the psychopath uh, has no handle on their violence and just that's just not true i mean these words have uh, are used now in the public domain and there's probably no getting away from them but for our purposes psychopaths sociopaths the same thing i mean there's another discussion as to where as to where this personality disorder comf- comes from but primarily like all personality disorders it's genetic Now, what can happen is, of course, depending on your social, your family and your environment, breaks can be put on certain behaviours. So if you're brought up in a family of real love and warmth and parental attachment, that may well keep a break on some of the worst excesses of being a psychopath, but
1: you're still a psychopath. So psychopaths and sociopaths, they're fairly similar. There is some thinking that some of them are born with it and well I mean it's not just thinking I mean I don't
0: think there's any there's no dispute out there that personality disorders generally are something that you're born with now I mean it's worth saying something about personality disorders just briefly generally personality disorder means you have difficulty living with yourself and or others and you never and consistently fail to learn from previous mistakes now I know everybody's thinking well you know I'm living with one of them, but you're not really, because there's about one in one in ten of the population might be suffering from a personality disorder. So if you overlay that on psychopathy, chuck in real lack of remorse, real lack of empathy, violence, and capricious and random behaviour, that's what a psychopath is. So we, we need to understand what it is. You are born with it, but it is true to say. It is true to say that your social, your family factors and so on can have an influence as to how it's developed and indeed how it might be managed.
1: Or whether, you know, what you're saying is maybe in a loving family where there's a lot of uh, stops put on behaviour that it may never actually come out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a certain reservation in that. I mean, I do take that point that depending on the home you're brought up in, um, a psychopath may not evidence their violence. But you know what? I think what normally happens is that it bleeds out into middle-class pursuits. So, okay, you're not going uh, walking up a Collins street ready to beat the head off somebody, but instead you do it on the rugby pitch or you do it in the uh, rugby club. And it becomes this kind of a, kind of a normative story of a Saturday night out. God, you really lost the head last night didn't you but ultimately it's the same it's the same element of gratuitous and wanton violence as you know, the niche character might be engaging in, in inner city Dublin. I mean, its outcomes are different, obviously, but really it's all about a repackaging. And middle class, middle income, better educated people are rather good at repackaging what they do into something more normative. And that's a that's classic why we say
1: that there would be plenty of psychopaths in the boardroom and sometimes who make their way up corporately. Well,
0: again, I I, I do have a bit of an issue with that. I mean, there is a consensus uh, among certain academics that psychopathy is somehow potentially good, and indeed, some psychopaths can do well in the boardroom, middle management, senior management. I really think that's unlikely. I, I, one of the big issues about psychopathy and hair psychopathy is impulsiveness, real impulsiveness. If we take Putin as an example today, everybody's assuming Putin's a psychopath. He may well be a psychopath. Certainly his behaviour is evidence somebody who has a psychopathic type personality, but he equally may not be a psychopath. A psychopath doesn't impulsively, you know, take 10 years to take over a region. It just doesn't happen. These people don't live in the moment. They live in the instant. So I think it's a little bit fanciful to regard somebody as a hair psychopath as often as we do doesn't mean they're not narcissistic, that they don't suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, or even its more serious cousin, malignant narcissism. Um, but that is still a step away from full-blown hair psychopathy. So I think we're, we're happy throwing out these sort of monikers to everybody, but very often, and here, here's the real catch, very often it can be about human brokenness and not a label. That's perhaps another discussion. But.
1: the um, Back to Graham Dwyer then, he's a, a classic psychopath. We will say, Um, he can learn how to behave normally. He can mimic others and that's why he can live in that sort of normal family home. Yeah, it's quite possible.
0: And again, it's where he's brought up. So he wasn't, uh, to the best of my understanding, he certainly wasn't brought up in what we might call a deprived Uh, family situation. So he would have had some some good benefits of of growing up. And certainly they will have been passed on to him. Like a lot of psychopaths as well, he can suffer from status anxiety. And that becomes very important, you know, that you get a profession that you're respected in the community. So he will be able to play that game and indeed did play that game of working in a middle class uh, environment uh, with his middle income uh, uh, type of life. And that will be appealing to him and, and what's also appealing to him is that what lies underneath this is this you know uh, unending supply of trouble which is about to and i use trouble in the broadest sense which is about to bubble up at any particular time but yes depending on your background you see it's quite i mean G- G- graham dwyer is not going to start going into the uh, inner city of dublin around uh, with respect several place or portland row or wherever and start banging heads together and saying you want some You know, it's just not going to happen. But what he is going to do is going to be sly and manipulative and deceitful on, for example, work outings, as we know he was. He he would go away for periods himself and people would wonder where he'd gone to. So his behaviours will just be different. And that can be a function of
1: your upbringing. So this master-slave thing then, that, you know, they're well advanced in the relationship here, but he's talking about, she's asking him what punishments he's going to give her. You forget about these texts, what they were like. There's one of them, what kind of punishment would you like? He says, choices are, are, choices are hard anal with stabbing and choking, whipping till bleeding, chained overnight in forest, choked unconscious.
0: Yeah, just make a couple of comments about that. Um, Dwyer knows full well the world in which he has lived and still lives. And that is a world where sexual practices have been uh, pushed out. So what was normative in sexual practices uh, 50 years ago, uh, or excuse me, what was considered extraordinary 50 years ago, is now normative. So he is part of that social milieu which suggests that anything goes, uh, and where sex has become very commoditized. It was ever so. I mean, I'm not suggesting it wasn't, but there's no doubt about it. it's certainly, it, it certainly increased in the last number of years. Generations. Now that's the background. Now, within even that background, he is an envelope pusher. He's certainly living on the edge, as um, uh, texts like that uh, indicate. But if you were to move, remove a couple of those words, just take away the context a little bit, maybe just soften it slightly. The sad reality is that's not an uncommon text that may be going around the Tinder generation at the moment. Um, So I'm not sure that it's as extraordinary as we imagine. Of course, it is in, in what he wishes to do and what is so I- extraordinary in, in his methods. But actually, he's cute. He's he's working with, He's he, I mean, he's not working amongst the Amish community. Let me put it like that. Like, he, he, he's not comparing himself to a load of Mennonites with respect to Mennonites. You know, he's comparing himself to a generation of people where, um, unusual sexual activity is usual. Okay. So that's really important. So if you take away a a few of those key and disturbing words in there, don't get me wrong, he's maybe actually, he's cute. He's working within this environment. What it is saying to us about him is he is prepared to cross the Rubicon, you know, that we can say. So as normative as I might be presenting that by taking away one or two words, he still is very different. That is a very well, the stabbing unusual. stabbing and choking thing to say. is, hardly of course, normal, normal. now now stabbing was something that came up um, uh, at his trial. Um, which is a fetish known as picurism, or to stab light. Um, And that is something that's generally, I mean, it's a fetish, it's out there, but that is something that generally, as I say, crosses the line into fully personality disordered individuals. Choking, maybe not so much. Uh, Again, not suggesting choking is normative amongst younger people in sexual practices, but that is something you will hear more about. What you won't hear about is stabbing. What you will hear about is self-harm. So actually, if you broaden it out and you look at the general social context of what he is doing and the society he's in, he's working it. He's pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. This isn't 50. It's a thousand shades of grey. And he's gone right to the edge of it. And indeed, as those texts
1: evidence, he's gone above and beyond. So he's found a very vulnerable victim who has got psychiatric problems, is in and out of hospital. He clearly doesn't want any sort of a normal relationship with her yet. He's promising her babies. And, you know, you can kind of see from the text that she's soft, disturbed and Mm. probably in love and enamored with them. She's had from a young age these visions of herself being tied up. And he has really taken advantage of somebody.
0: Yes, he has. And, and, and we, we should also just comment here about what one of the commonalities among psychopathy, and you'll see it really across the board with these type of men, is what's called the duping delight the ability to fool people. I mean, you see it with sexual serial killers a lot when they try and ingratiate themselves back into the conversation, the criminal investigation. They appear um, at various uh, functions where they shouldn't be at, where police may be gathered and so on. They're fascinated with authority. Well, this duping delight by Dwyer is very typical. I mean, some people might say it's, it's, it's not untypical of a lot of men in a much milder Uh, uh, less serious form but certainly when again you come to psychopathy it it goes so much further than we can imagine so he has found somebody vulnerable and now that is important because Dwyer and people like him will not be successful actually with most females because they will see it immediately they will recognize there's something unusual about it and they will generally speaking not take part in it so he does need to seek out a woman who is particularly vulnerable. And sadly, in this case, he found Elena Harrow.
1: And does that say something about his confidence?
0: Now, confidence is another very interesting issue to do with psychopaths, okay? So there is this view, again, amongst the general public about psychopaths, that they're actually lacking in confidence. That kind of, if I can just maybe stretch it a little bit here, that they're kind of going home every night and having a cry, you know, and looking in the mirror, mirror every morning going, you can be a contender, you'll be fine, just keep your... That's not psychopathy, right? So confidence doesn't actually even come into it as part of their personality because it's something entirely different. Remember when we're thinking about Dwar and people People like him, as as Robert Hare says, the world expert on psychopathy, he doesn't think he's a star in the universe. He thinks he's the only star. So you see, we've moved on from confidence into something that's almost in the DNA. So there's no contrivance, right? So he won't, in my opinion, pick a vulnerable person because she makes him feel better. At least if that is a feeling he's getting, it's peripheral. The main feeling is, I'm carrying out my, uh, what my DNA dictates I need to carry out. I need to. He, he's like a kitten playing with a ball of wool. That's the really good analogy. You play with it for a couple of seconds as a kitten, you throw it away and you move on. You're living in the second. That's what he's doing with her. It's not related to confidence
1: as you or I would understand it. But he's had to go out and find somebody that accepts this BDSM situation that he's the master, they're the slave. Correct. You know, he's not going to be able to walk into a pub probably and chat up a woman and find a soulmate in that. No,
0: he's not. And I have to say from his behaviours in court, I would have thought any woman or indeed man would be quite wary when they'd meet him. Some peculiar behaviours, uh, a couple of odd things that he... Well, not a couple, a lot, a lot of odd things he said. He just behaved physically quite unusually. So yeah, you're right. I think if he walked into a pub, he, in his words, he'd need to get very lucky you know, to meet somebody who, was, who had such a fragile psychological template. Yeah.
1: What sort of ways did you think he acted peculiar? He would smile and then he'd put on a sad face. He was
0: quite good at this kind of <clears throat> um, sort of excessive use of expressions, but you did get a sense that the expressions were all meaningless, which of course is correct. Isn't that right? Because, you know, uh, f- for psychopaths like Dwyer, um, uh, emotion is like a second language. So it's like learning French. There's that bit of an L- L.A. delay. You know, so when he would smile at something smart that his counsel might have said, as he would have seen it, he'd be that couple of nanoseconds behind, and you'd look over and go, that didn't fit right. In fact, there was another case very like this, uh, which some listeners may remember of twenty years ago, Joe Riley, when he was on the Late Late Show, who again was w- was was trying to do the emotions, but you know, got of him, he wasn't able to do them, and, and so everything would be delayed. So that's what I noticed about him in court. Everything was that second behind what you would consider normative, assuming one is oneself. You know, you'd look at him and go, that doesn't seem to be meshing in together. That person is not creating a mental facsimile of what's going on here today. He's not in the moment.
1: I suppose it's easy to recognise that in a courtroom when he's sitting there charged with murder, and we know the details of what he's done. But if you were out in the community, do you think, you know, and you met him, would you know there was just something I do, wrong? I do think that,
0: yeah. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. In the courtroom environment, of course, it's very heightened. So those things would possibly be exaggerated. But I would think even in a social setting. Now, people may not be have been able to put a label on it, mm-hmm. you know, other than he's a wrong one you know? Um, but there's something not right about him because people, uh, normal people don't spend their lives like me thinking about these type of things, you know? So they would just say, look, there's something not quite right about him. I don't know what it is. But actually, if you're to drill down into it, it's all that delayed reaction into what you or I might regard as normative emotional stuff. So, you know, again, to quote Harry, he knows the words, but he doesn't know the music. Uh, uh, so I think you would definitely have been able to notice that within a social setting. In fact, no question.
1: And do you think that we all as human beings have that sense of perception? Like I would often go with my gut with people. I have a feeling I can often get a sense even when somebody comes into the room. but then I am working in a world that makes me slightly more paranoid than others. But do you think everybody has a certain perception?
0: Oh, 100%. Everyone's got that perception. Uh, uh, Unless, of course, you happen to be one of the people, but uh, one of these small group of men. But yeah, I think they have the perception. But you're right, people don't give it a label, naturally enough, because they don't have a label for it. They can't quite put their finger on it, but it's just not right. So it's beyond indifference. I mean, you'll meet people every, you know, who'll nod and say, oh, that's interesting, John. and, And they're not interested. And that's okay. That's part of the human condition but no you're talking about something different here which is that they just don't seem to be able to emotionally catch up with the flow of the conversation now that could be in their hand movements which don't seem to be uh, uh, don't seem to have any purchase on the supposed emotion they're not going hand in hand they're not looking as if they're all happening at the same time now you wouldn't notice that ordinarily why because it doesn't happen because people are generally genuine in their emotions. I mean, you might not agree with them, you might hate them, all those other things, but you know what they're saying is authentic. That's probably a better way to put it. And it's the lack of authenticity we see in Dwyer and people like Dwyer that makes people like yourself go, and indeed myself go, something just not right there. Not, right about yeah, not everyone you got. feel that
1: about, by the way, is a psychopath. But no, no, well, that's a really you know, because important. Because well, they're very rare.
0: No, well, yeah. And you, well, that is a really good point because you can go towards this topic and then start seeing psychopaths everywhere. Yeah. And I can tell you now you're wrong. I mean, you know, psycho is kind of, depending on what community you're from, uh, a, a term of venom or indeed. A term of endearment, you know, are you the best psycho in town or not? But I think we do use it too liberally.
1: Mm. It's not that long ago this happened, and we are all aware how the phones and anything we write and all the rest. But he's made some measures to buy phones and not register to himself. But the confidence he has of luring Elaine O'Hara to his to her death is extreme. But is there also an element of he literally is? Like he's going with whatever emotions he has and he can't stop himself.
0: And that's, uh, I think that's the key to it. Because when we look at people like Dwar, what do we do? We imagine ourselves, you know, we imagine people we know. We imagine people who have ups and downs, but they're generally part of that thing we like to call the human race. Well, that's your first mistake because you can't be doing that. What you have to do is imagine somebody different, somebody outside the ordinary. And that becomes very difficult for us to do. So we, you mentioned confidence again there. That's a really important thing. He, people like Dwar believe everything they're in. There's not a moment that he's going, oh, I don't know about that. You know, he, And it's not because he's confident or a genius. In fact, neither of those things apply. But that he's just in his DNA. So he just doesn't recognize that there's any difficulty with anything. He's living the dream. In some ways, there's a huge authenticity about psychopaths because they do not deviate at any moment from their disorder. It's always there. Personality disorders are enduring. That's really important. Like, you might be able to, in proper clinical environment, manage them somehow, but that's all you're ever going to do. And, and certainly, by the way, with psychopathy, it's almost impossible to manage, but there are attempts to do it. And um, So he is living a very, he's, he's living, as the young folk might say, he's living his best life. He really is. The problem is, we constantly, as is a human condition, think of us if we went off the rails or we imagine somebody if... No, no, you're not dealing with the type of human being you're used to dealing with. And I think once you understand that, all bets are off. And this person will drive straight through you and he won't look back. That's not because he's cocky or confident in the way we ordinarily understand it. It's because he's
1: disordered. That's why he'll do it. But his confidence remains in that he's not go- that he is going to get away with this. That he is going to bring well, a human being to their death the way he wants them to die, and in you know living his fantasy. But
0: it's more than that. It's not just confidence. Is that he genuinely, one hundred percent, does not care about the possibility or even the certainty of being found out. So it's way beyond something we call confidence.
1: Do you don't think uh, he cares about being found out?
0: Absolutely not. No question. Only in so far, because what he'll simply do is, with his personality disorder is reinvented into the interview room with Angarda Shi Kona, as undoubtedly he did, uh, and then with, within the prison community. You just simply operate your disorder within whatever, because again, here we go, we're already saying, oh, I wouldn't like that. Oh, I wouldn't like to go to prison. It, he's never been to prison before this. It doesn't matter to him. Why? Because he's uber confident. No, it's more than that. It's because he's disordered. So it doesn't matter to him. Uh, You'll often see with um, sexual serial killers, most of them being sexual, covert or overt, that they will just, you know, they might uh, try and dupe the police for a while when they're being interviewed, and then they'll come up with a slam dunk. And they just give in because they really don't care. And they get tired and they get hungry and they want a meal and they want to get settled in their cell and just see what's going to go on the next day. But they're not thinking about tomorrow. So none of the uh, anchor points that we have in life, that more normative human beings have in life, none of them will Graham Dwyer have. And again, once you start to, it's very hard to leave your own comfort zone of understanding. I mean, I understand you know, I understand that. You don't want to move away, from, oh, well, I'd say now he'd get very upset about that or should, or I'd say he's very confident. He's none of those things. He's not laughing at you or I. He's completely authentic to his disorder, which is entirely dysfunctional on on a human scale.
1: but he he lures her to a place. he finds a place in the mountains where, Her body won't be found. He, you know, he makes plans. He he covers his tracks with the with the phones. He doesn't want to be to kill her and to go to jail. He wants to kill her and maybe go back and look at her body. Or that's possibly true. And he,
0: but but remember, it's it's more about it all being the game. It's the game, and you know, part of the game is you might get caught, and there's the visceral delight. Of getting caught, you know, you might get caught. Well, I'll do my best not to get caught. And there's a delight in that. And there's a secrecy in it. But it's all game playing. It's all manipulation. It's all deceit. So it's not, again, we start thinking, yeah, but he doesn't want that outcome. It's not as simple as that. He may not want it that night, but the next night he mightn't care less, you know. So it's not. he's not planning as you or I would be. He's not concerned like you or I. It's not that he's a tough man in the way we understand it. He's far beyond that. He's utterly dysfunctional. So he'll play the game, but the game can be played anywhere. It can be played in the Dublin Mountains. It can be played in the interview room. It can be played with the prison officers. It can be played with prisoners. It can be played everywhere. He
1: just needs a field. And once he has it and he's in it, off he goes. And of course, he did have female visitors following his his jailing. That's my understanding. Yeah, 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 that's my
0: understanding. Yeah, and... No surprises there, but if you told me he had none, that'd be no surprise either. It's all entirely random. Um, It doesn't mean that he wouldn't have physical desires. We clearly know he has those. In fact, what he has are things called somatic manifestations, bodily manifestations that are so great, his sexual urges are so strong that he will act on them. I mean, that's another deviancy but uh so yeah i'm not surprised that he he, he had that. But, but but i suppose what i'm trying to get away from is this idea of people thinking that he's there going oh you know i really like sex i really don't want to go to prison i really love that person i really hate most it's he's not anything he's way beyond all of that he you, it doesn't even like it, it, when we talk about this personality disorder i try to get across to students and others about the lack of empathy um Lack of empathy doesn't quite say it. You don't even come within their orbit. I think once you understand that, except as a play thing, and once you understand that, Mm -hmm. you begin to get an understanding of the potential deviancy because there is nothing to lose. He never has anything to lose because he's self-contained within his dysfunctionality. So
1: his gain from this is to feed his fantasy, which is to stab this woman to death and the horrific details of it. But Joe O'Reilly's different. Again, Joe Riley isn't
0: that different. Uh, Joe Riley, again, my understanding is, I'm no expert on this, but has
1: got quite a, got on pretty well in prison. Um, uh, to but he had more to gain. He's killing his wife to get her out of the picture to move another woman in to keep his children to avoid having to... Move out. Again, that's our, again,
0: that's our somewhat normative interpretation of it because that's what we would think, isn't it? Oh, well, here's his plan. He's doing it this way. He's doing that. And I'm not saying he doesn't have a plan. What I'm saying to you is it's still in the moment. And the idea of a long term plan, the way other people might understand it is probably not there in the same way. So it's only part of this kind of milieu. Although there may appear to be plans and get that out of the way and get this in and get that, it's not really as you or I understand it, you know, we just have to be careful because there's such a temptation to push what we might regard as a normative template onto them. We forget, oh, hang on, they're not operating in the same universe. You know, they are literally in a different universe. So all comparisons are kind of, in many ways, worthless. It uh, doesn't mean for, you know, today I wouldn't mind getting the wife, wife out and, yeah, I'd like to get a girlfriend, and uh, but tomorrow it'll be something different. you know it isn't, it isn't fixed. It isn't certain in the way
1: we understand. Well, Joe Riley could have got away with murder and could have his girlfriend moved into that house and we could never have heard of him again. It appeared his crime of murder, his idea to get away with murder, had a more functional element to it than Graham Dwyer's.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah,
1: again, I'm not so, I'm not so sure. Just
0: it does appear to have a more medium term strategy to it, but all I'm saying to you is, I'm not convinced it ever really did, even if it looked like that. I'm not convinced it did. Um, psych- psychopathy is a spectrum, but there are certain commonalities amongst all psychopaths, and the one thing is the old frontal lobe, the bit that does the planning. It's a, bit more, it's a bit more active in one than another, but ultimately they're never huge. That doesn't mean, though, that you don't live a life as if you're normative. That's the shallow emotion stuff. And that's not just about talking. That's just about things like planning. And to an extent, I suppose you might also uh, try to convince yourself that you're kind of like everybody else. One of the interesting things about psychopaths, Riley, Duar, all of them, is that they will be, they get a little bit affronted, well, they get very affronted over lots of things, but they get very affronted when you somehow describe them as abnormal, if we can use that term, as something that isn't akin to what we might regard as good and decent behaviours. They say, no, no, we, we, we have, but according to our rules, not yours. So there might be an element of, just to get back to your point, about Riley borrowing the idea of motivations in life and plans and all that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying to you is, I wouldn't be convinced that there's any real substance to that other than Showtime,
1: you know. Mm. So what about serial killers here in Ireland? Why don't we have any? Why are we devoid of serial killers? Well, there's
0: probably a lot of reasons. for Well, maybe a better way to look at it is, why is the United States full of them? Yes. Why was Central Europe full of them back in the Middle Ages? Um, and why the United States is full of them is probably or certainly was full of them, Uh, two things. One of them being contagion. Uh, There is a lot of copycat stuff goes on over there in terms of crime, as we know, in a different context. Um, That's certainly uh, one reason. Um, Another reason, of course, is tolerance within the society for such behaviours. So uh, as more of these continue, uh, it it doesn't get headline news anymore. Uh, It will still get headline news in Ireland, But again, one of the reasons maybe it's so uh, commonplace or has been so commonplace in in the States is it's often said for two very strange reasons. One, because it's a godless society, whatever that means, but also because it's a God-fearing society. So you have this incredibly interesting juxtaposition uh, of two people who are either with or without morals as they would see it. Uh, There's so many other social and cultural reasons, of course, and economic reasons as to why it might happen in the States. Why it doesn't happen in Ireland could be manifold as well. I think it is a small community, first of all. I haven't mentioned, of course, this idea of policing techniques having improved. You know, The FBI, I mean, years ago it was five, then it was four, then it was three, then it was two, before you could be a when serial killer. When is the killer. last
1: time, really, that the states had this wave, it appeared to have this wave of serial killers and, you know
0: the United States yeah
1: well You're the United the States 60s. yeah,
0: typically associated with the 60s 70s and 80s yeah and, and there's good reason to believe that police techniques after that became
1: more sophisticated completely once, you have CCTV when, yeah. you have uh, all those things much easier to trace so people. you just
0: don't get it. it it doesn't mean that people can't go in as we know sadly and do mass shootings but that's different spree killing is different but when it comes to that type of you know ad hoc murdering that's going on over a period of time it, it becomes far more difficult the 70s and 80s of course as we know for those who've been watching programs about Jimmy Savile et al was an incredibly strange time culturally globally uh, where 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 bizarre sexual goings on and very obvious deviant sexual behavior was tolerated in a way that wouldn't be now so there was a certain I think tolerance in society so for example to give you an example uh, and this has happened in a couple of occasions in the United States there have been men you know have gone up to women in the streets you're beautiful um I'm a part-time photographer, but i'm 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 involved with these true crime magazines. Would you like to come back to my house and we can take some pictures and I can get you? And they would and they and that seems preposterous now, but at that time, you know this, this was top shelf stuff, and of course these these were uh, ways for these deviant men to torture, abuse, and finally kill kill these women. so so I think there's an awful lot to be said for it. now, of course, there's another thing you know some people might say. It wasn't because of them, but perhaps the the fear of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, you could, don't get me wrong, there was plenty of other deviancy you could get involved in, but maybe not sexual serial killing, you know. Um, And there was a certain fear. There's also this, I mean, you know, Ireland's a pretty safe place globally. You know, it's a pretty safe place. And there is this kind of community sanction here as well. And,
1: you know, people have a high level of tolerance for certain crimes and a very low level for others, Serial killing being one of them. We could also have missed a few because, you know, there was that period of time that I think policing was very concentrated on the Troubles and, um, you know, maybe.
0: Oh, I think we have missed a few and I'm thinking of one person in particular. We definitely have missed one, two or three. Um, and you're right. I think there was an overemphasis. There's also a kind of a feeling in Ireland that should there's no way that could happen. And actually, most of the time we're right. There is no way. But just some of the times we won't be right. But but I think there's certainly historically, there's been a huge trust in people that their crimes won't uh, reach Herculean levels. And if they do, they'll be under the banner of politicization, you know, or military action or whatever it might be. But certainly in an ordinary sense of the word.
1: Now, are people still obsessed with serial killers? The general public.
0: I do a lot of lecturing on it and I cannot believe the interest in sexual serial killers. You know the way I say I keep saying sexual serial killers, by the way, just to get this straight, because there's no evidence that any serial killer hasn't either got some covert or overt sexual interest in why they did what they did. The interest in it is phenomenal. And I would say, so I've been 30 years or more maybe doing uh, lecturing in this stuff. I would say it's more so than years ago, even. Um, uh, and, of course, the media has a lot to do with that. Um, Netflix. Yeah, and I do mean more Netflix than newspapers. Yeah. Because, uh, but, yeah, Netflix, where it becomes really normal. And, and the, you know, the, there's a certain amount of voyeurism that's allowed, there's an awful lot now that isn't allowed. So, the Benny Hill culture, certainly on the surface, is gone. That's not allowed anymore. Carry on movies, all that nonsense. Larry Grayson, shut that door, sir. You know, all that nonsense is kind of swept under the carpet. But there is a tolerance now. Okay. But it's almost as if, right, you can't think about these weird things all day, but we're going to package it into a Netflix. We'll put it on this evening. You can have a glass of wine. You can have your two hours, then a madness. Yes. It's almost as if we've compartmentalized it, in, yes. not into our general lives, but our specific voyeur lives. So- so, you know, I would say, um, I have to be careful what I say here, but on all my courses in, in England or, or here, I would say there is a significant proportion of females who are on those courses because they have a particular fascination with sexual serial killing and torture. N- not because, and by the way, I'm not suggesting for a minute that, that they, they they like it or encourage or any of th- those things, but that they find it so abhorrent that they need to know more about it. And that's part of the human condition. Sometimes things are so awful, we need to know more. By the way, it's not to say men aren't interested, they are. But I have found men to be more interested in the I'm going to generalize here now, but the scientific study of crime, more interested in social, family, and, and, and maybe environmental reasons for crime. But on the female side, I've found more So of the an women
1: are they trying to protect themselves by learning more about this, by examining what sort of vulnerabilities you need to become a victim of a serial killer, or are they just finding it entertaining? Uh, I would suggest the latter,
0: yeah. I, I, I don't think there's too many women in Ireland waking up today, thankfully, who are saying, you know, do the messages, <laughs> collect the kids, and remember to watch that video on how to protect yourself from a serial killer. You know, that's just not happening today in Ireland. So what they are is, is fascinated with it. Fascinated. With, and, and, of course, where they're fascinated, and by the way, I, this is all people. Where people are fascinated in this area is in the contrasting lifestyles. So that's why something like uh, Dwyer, of course, is really interesting. Architect Fox Rock does the most heinous crime imaginable. And maybe others, you know, we don't know. Uh, And that is a story in itself, uh, living this double life, this management of a deviant lifestyle with what appears to be a normative lifestyle that's where the interest lies. It doesn't lie, as you will well know, Nicola, anymore, in one drug dealer killing another drug dealer. That holds no fascination for anyone anymore, which, which again is a different podcast, but that's incredibly sad, it seems to me. But it isn't interesting for the general
1: public. So um, are women in particular, do they like to see that perfect couple no longer being that? Do we like the idea that, you know, they thought they had, but actually they have real problems within that home, within that marriage? There's always a bit of fraud
0: about it, isn't there? you know, always slightly... Uh, I mean, I don't know if I'd go all the way with you on that one, but there, you know, we've all got problems in our lives, and our families, God knows, you know. And sometimes when we see other families with problems, we kind of go, you know, there's a little bit... Um, you might extend that to say, well, I thought I had problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a little vi- I mean, you know, we have to state something. We've been dancing around this a bit in the last couple of minutes of conversation. There is definitely some sort of visceral joy, if I can call it that, something that we don't like to identify in ourselves, not just uh, females now, but males, which is just genuinely just on its own fascinated with why a man could do that to another man or a woman. Um and there is some sort of visceral notion there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's
0: inexplicable, really.
1: Is there bar the obvious alien Wornos any female serial killers no. or are they mainly men? No. And and we can forget that even with
0: Alien Wornos, it's not it's not okay, they were sexual serial killings, but not in the way that men would be. And there were probably other motivations there with alien Wornos as well. Well we
1: can we're saying that she, you know, that that in a way because she was a woman, um, that her killings were okay. She did... Oh, I'm not saying. She did did actually target and murder, I can't remember off the top of my head, how many people. She'd have reasons to because she'd been badly treated by men, but... Thank you. You turn that around, and a lot of the male serial killers, you'll find, if you go back, they've been badly treated by women. Well... Or so they perceive...
0: First of all, we have very few female serial killers, obviously, out there. Of the type we're just where, nicer. Of where the type we're describing. No, you're not nicer. You just do different Far crimes. Far nicer. <laughs> you just do different crimes. Um, there's a thing called the Kelleher typology, which kind of goes through all the motivations for women. And sexual motivation as a primary motivator, or indeed even as a part motivator, is, is a really small percentage, of a small percentage. Mm. profit. And revenge tend to be uh, the real motivation of. So you were talking there primarily about revenge. By the way, that's not. I, I take your point. That's not to say that male serial killers don't have problems with women, and there won't be an element of revenge, and that it might manifest itself in. It might just manifest itself in sexual activity, but it's uh, it, it, the. It, it's definitely skewed over towards uh, for a lot of serial killers, um, a, a, a wish to prove their to disprove their sexual inadequacy and to prove their sexual prowess, uh, which is common with a lot of sex offenders as well. It's, It's more deeply rooted, of course, with sexual serial killers in men. Um... But but it isn't, but I mean, just crime generally, Uh, you know, count the amount of female prisons in Ireland. There, we've done it, you know, Mm. know, that's it. Uh, So men commit crime, men externalize, men are violent. It doesn't mean to say women don't commit crime. The few that do tend to internalize, tend to be involved in more theft and fraud. Uh, uh, That's not to let those women away with it, but it's just a numbers game. And it's men, 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 men. Are the problem in crime? If it was just females who are the problem in crime, we wouldn't have a problem with crime. Let me put it like that. Mm. We'd have a far different world then. Yeah, I mean, look, and that's the nature of who you know who the genders are, and 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 there's lots of biosocial, historical, genetic reasons for all of that. Um, Some people will put it down to nurturing, and uh, you know. I, you know, there's nothing about, about women. Yeah, I, I'll go out and do that killing, but just at the moment, I've got to get the kids the breakfast. You know, there's a little bit of that going on. Whereas you go to a man and go, oh, no, it's all about me. I'm out. Mm. Yeah, she looks after the kids. It's all about me. So the men are can be uh, more more self-centered. Of course, we have plenty of self-centered women. The female personality disorders are very different as well. Female personality disorder of something called borderline personality disorder, which came up in the Amber Heard Um Uh, litigation um uh, and well in her case histrionic personality uh, or personality disorder which is kind of like uh, a sexy version sometimes called (laughs) a borderline personality disorder in other words you're using your sexuality within your manic episodes um that tends to reside more in the female than the male, but males can still suffer from it as well. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that these females can't disrupt lives, and they do, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to crime in the same way that...
1: Do we not all have a bit of a personality disorder? Well, no, we, no, we don't. I mean, it is,
0: a, it, it, it's, it's, you know, conversations like this do kind of somewhat tediously, no offence, end with, we're all mad, Father. You know, do we all have to be mad now, Ted? Well, we're not all mad, you know. We all have our issues. Of course we do. But some of us can still manage to pretty much, some of us, to live within our lives and bring some happiness to people and love and be loved. You know, we all fail. We all fall blind. I'm not talking... People with personality disorders have extra problems. They can't live with themselves and they never learn from their previous mistakes. Not sometimes don't learn from... That's me and you. We sometimes don't learn. Come on, we've got to be honest. There are times we don't. And we do repeat the same mistake. But if you're doing that all the time throughout your life, that's an issue and that's probably
1: a disorder. Mm. So what killers in Ireland fascinate people and particularly the women that come to your lectures the most?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we've mentioned two Well, there's certainly a top two that come up the most often. But if I'm honest, Irish women, I'm sorry to categorize my class now and divide them in this way, but probably men as well. Are more interested in uh, foreign serial killers, if well, I can use we that that. <laughs> Well, we don't have any, and uh, you know, some serial killers abroad have committed, uh, killed hundreds, mm, mm. thousands in some cases, potentially. Um, and that's going back a number of years, but uh, th- there's something about. Oh, th- there's a greater choice certainly outside the country, um, and there isn't that choice within Ireland for people to discuss and think about. So we do tend to, for want of a better comparison, cling on to them like life preservers, you know. You know the, the Dwyer and, I wonder, and Riley are this generation. Is our interest favorite.
1: growing as this occupation is becoming a thing of the past? The occupation of? Serial killing.
0: Yeah, so I think that's right. So the more it becomes, uh, you know, uh, what's rare is beautiful, you know, and uh, the fact that it is not commonplace is interesting. Like, for example, if you if, if I went into my class, in fact, I do talk to them, particularly in Ireland, about the psychology of terrorism. uh, mm. Particularly when it comes to Irish terrorism. Why? Because we know all about Pyra. We know all about the INLA. We all know about loyalism. And quite honestly, for want of a better term, we're bored with it. But if I go in and talk to them about ISIS, well, that's a bit different. Yeah. What about the fellow who lives uh, uh, above a, a flat in North London? He's got no history of violence. He's 18 years of age. His parents are very religious. He used to be very religious. Then he kind of went off the rails a bit. and Now he's off in Syria looking for somebody to kill. They're interested in that because it's unusual. And, and it, sorry, it appears to be unusual. I mean, the thing about really heinous crime is actually when you get down to it, it's quite understandable. When you look at the dysfunctionality that these people live in and come from, it actually isn't that difficult to imagine. But of course, we don't do that. We just assume they're normal and went a bit off track, you know, but it's always more serious than that. So, yeah, people are interested in that. They're not. So, we don't like the domestic stuff. Mm. You know, Irish people appear to have a great regard for themselves. I mean, we spend our, our um, national treasure, for instance, Ryan Tuberty, he, uh, or National Trinket, he uh, talks a lot about we're great, we're Irish, Irish, Ireland, Ireland, Irish era, Ireland. It's nonstop. But actually, we're a bit bored with ourselves. <laughs> and uh, when it comes to crime, we look abroad for our titillation, if I can call it that. We look ab- abroad for our interest because there's such a variety out there. Um, and Netflix, as you mentioned earlier on, is bringing the outside world of crime to us, the world in different continents.
1: So yeah, but there isn't a, there isn't a choice here for the voyeur, no, quite frankly, if I can put it like that. There's no simple answer though as to why women are so obsessed with crime, is there?
0: No, there's. I mean, like everything to do with crime, there's no there's no one simple answer. It's, there's lots of reasons. I mean, they guess. Um, uh, I, I think I think there is a biological reason. I think that's pretty strong. I think it seems to be innate in females that, uh, for example, now let, let me give you a nice simple example. It's got nothing to do with killing. Like I'm a short lad. I'm five foot 10. Now back in the day, five foot 10 was normal. Now I might as well be in a circus. You know, I mean, all men are tall. Women love tall men. Uh, heterosexual women, I'm just talking about for the moment. Heterosexual women love tall men. I hate women say to me, do you know, He's not the best looking, but he's six foot two. That'll do me. You know, if he was a stunner and he's five foot one, they wouldn't be interested, right? People, they have this thing about men being strong and broad. And I understand that, you know, sexual chemistry from both sides. Uh, and sometimes then that can go to the extreme. Now I want somebody who's very. We were talking about this earlier, offline, as it were. We were talking about how Now I want a man who's not only really tall. That's what I wanted.
1: To, that this was this was what you diagnosed me with.
0: Oh, you, amongst many things, Nicola. I mean, that's. A, I mean, how long have you got? Look, they'd be. They wouldn't be listening to the podcast. It'd be five years down the line. And I wouldn't be finished. No, I was joking. But hybristophilia are when uh, um, a woman who is attracted, for example, to an uber masculine guy, a hyper masculine guy. Okay, what about the example of Nige? I mentioned Nige earlier on from Love Hate. Yeah. A lot of people remember Nige. Mm-hmm. The amount of middle class, which is a term I don't know what it means, but let's just say we all know, middle class women who came up to me and said, I don't know what it is about that Nige. Now he wasn't a tall lad, but he had a lad, he was a lad who had a lot of confidence about him and he was quotes funny. Another thing women tend to talk about. I need you to be funny. Well, today I just don't feel like being. No, that's a different, a different point. But women do, our certain cohort of women, are attracted to the hyper male. Uh, and you know, I suppose the regular bunch of women might be attracted to it in work. You know, so he's a big job. I like the way he swags around the law courts. I like the fact that he's a surgeon or whatever it might be. You know, that might be an attract. But for other women, it's in violence and. You need to understand that subculture, because remember, being a doctor or a lawyer in that subculture, no one's interested. Being the most violent guy on the street, that has currency, that's the language. So maybe it's more understandable that those women will be attracted to this ultra-violent male who might be committing horrendous sexual acts, uh, up to and including murder, and evidencing horrendous pre- and post-mortem behaviours. That's when it goes to the extreme. But these women, you're right, are, have, a, have a job title. It doesn't everybody nowadays. And I wouldn't like anybody to leave this podcast without having one. And one of them is hybristophilia. And I was mentioning earlier on too that there are things called, uh, people called passive hybristophiles, such as uh, men who, or women who write to uh, men on death row for horrendous crimes and like to marry them occasionally. And then aggressive hybristophiles in the form of Rosemary West who commit the same crimes as their husband, if not worse. So there is this... I think there is a the genetic component that we can't get away from, but hard
1: to explain. Mm. And obviously, it was very unpalatable for people to read that there was a... Larry Murphy, for example, was in the uh, throes of a new relationship in the UK um, after he was released from prison here for a horrific rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd wonder how somebody could, you know, get involved with somebody okay. like that. But of course, it is the idea that they will protect their well, survivors, so protect you've the woman.
0: This, so, so, okay. This, this woman, will this notional woman is unusual. There's not many of them out there, but they will have this nurturing instinct taken to the nth degree. Nobody understands Larry like I understand Larry. Number one and number two, uh, with respect to Coldplay, I will fix them. You know. I'm going to sort it out, back off women, you just don't understand, I'm going to sort this problem out, I've got it. Because of course, there's a self-reflected glory there, isn't there? Which which kind of ties in with something not unrelated, which is the saviour complex that a lot of us have in life more generally, but particularly when it comes to bad men and this group of women who will save them. And, of course, by doing so, you think that the second player in it, they believe themselves to be as important, if not more important, than the heinous uh, man they're purporting to
1: save. John Uh, Dean O'Keefe, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nicola. Nice to be here. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.
0: Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on,